Welcome back to another episode of the Spooky Rip Jean Mom. My name is Peyton Kennedy, and real fast, I want to do an update over the Eileen Warnos case um, because one of my friends brought it to my attention on Instagram that there, which I didn't find until she had brought it up, and I really dug into Eileen, um, but I did want to clear something up. It, there is a video interview like five or ten minutes before Eileen's supposed to get in the chair to be executed and Eileen admits that she did not kill any of her victims in self-defense that it was merely um just because she wanted to and I know I did Eileen a while ago and I found this out when I had originally posted her on Instagram it took me a long time to want to put an update um, because I tried to dig more into that interview and came up with nothing. I truly believe the system failed Eileen and she did change her confessions three times. So I don't really know how truthful her admission before going into the execution room I don't know how true that was, but it's on Instagram of my friend telling me where I can find the video and stuff like that. So if you see it, I didn't want you guys to think, oh, well, she's just hiding this because of how she felt towards it. I didn't see it at all until my friend told me about it. And I truly think with Eileen not being here, we will never know the full story. I also don't think we'll know the full story to anything, um, considering her mental state when everything went down um but again I do feel like Eileen was very I think her whole case was mishandled greatly and today we are on Kansas and you might be like Peyton normally when you do Kansas like the states you put the killer well um the person that I'm doing for Kansas you either really really know this case well it's a very popular case or you don't know it at all so I didn't want to give it away right away, mostly because if you have heard it before, you may have not heard all of it. I know that Netflix has one episode on catching a killer about him, so, but it doesn't go into like, it goes into detail, but it's only one episode and it's only like an hour long. So it's not like as in depth as what I'm going to get into because it is really how they found them. And it's very like short and I'm going to go more into the victims and things like that. So I didn't want to tell you until we got into the case. Maybe when you hear it, you're like, oh my gosh, I know exactly who you're talking about. Or maybe you're like, I have no clue, even by the end. So, let's get into it. Baby's asleep. Bailey's playing video games. You know the drill. So, if you hear him, I'm sorry. He's sometimes very annoying. So, I just want to let you know that I have a reference page. I'll put that at the end. So, if you end up wanting to skip it, you can. I also wanted to let you know that a lot the media covered this a lot back in the 1970s specifically the wichita eagle and cake tv the only reason why i'm mentioning that is because they play a very important role in this case so let's get into it i have my notes on my laptop so hopefully this goes well 
We're going to go to January 15th of 1974. Joseph Otario worked at the Coleman Equipment Company, and he was at home with his wife, Julie, and their two kids. Now, Joseph and Julie had a total of five kids, but their older kids were at school. So it was Josie, who was 11, and Joey, who were who was nine, that were at home with their parents. Um, when all of a sudden, their phone lines were cut. And a man who Joseph and Julie did not know entered their home. He ended up strangling Joseph and Julie. And um, when the other two kids got home from school, it only ever mentions one of the kids that came home. His name was Charlie. His sister that came home with him, it never, it never told who that was. Um, but when they came home, they noticed that their dog Lucky was outside, which they thought was weird because in a 2020 extra that Charlie did, he said that their dog was never just outside waiting for him. So the kids went to the back door and the back door led into the kitchen. And that's when Charlie noticed that his mom's purse was all over the stove. Like the contents of it were thrown out. And he said that the kitchen just looked ransacked, which was unusual again, because his mom was usually really tidy and the kitchen, you know, just never looked like that. So he yelled out if there was anyone home. And um, one of his siblings had gone more into the house to look for them. And she like popped her head out and was like, hey, mom and dad are playing this like really bad trick on us. And Charlie was like, what the heck? So he went into the bedroom and that's where he saw his mom on the bed and his dad on the floor. His mom was tied up and his dad had a belt around his neck. They were dead. So immediately Charlie called the police. They also left the house. And when the police came in and were like walking the house, that's when they discovered that Josie was in the basement and Joey was in another room, which Charlie said that him and his other sibling didn't even know that Josie and Joey were dead or even in the house until the police came out saying that they had found them. Now, semen was found, but no one in the Ontario family had been sexually assaulted. And it did look like the killer took a watch from the house. Now we're going to flash forward to April 4th of 1974. Um, Catherine Bright, she was only 21 and she lived with her brother. They had come home. She also worked at Coleman and when she came inside, the killer was waiting with a gun. He had broken in the house. Um, Kevin, which was Catherine's brother, was shot and Catherine was stabbed to death, but Kevin ended up surviving and went to the police immediately after, like, he was fine. Like, when he went to the hospital, the police came to him type of deal. So then, in October of 1974, the killer introduces himself to the police. Um, because someone had falsely confessed to killing the Otario family, he had also said um, that two of his friends participated in the killings. But then, an editor at the Wichita Eagle got a really weird phone call, and the person who called said to look into a mechanical engineering book that was at the Wichita Public Library. So, police went over there, and they found the letter in the book, and it said, those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity. The code words for me will be, bind them, torture them, kill them. BTK. You see him at you see him at it again? 
they'll be the next victim. That's right, folks. We are talking about BTK. Now, I'm not going to tell you his real name until we get to, like, the end when they catch him. You know. I don't want to be, like, spoiler alert, but if you have heard it, then, like, you know he's been found and, you know, all that stuff. Um, so the details that police got from this were that, you know, there were a lot of misspellings, a lot of grammatical errors. He also had a sexually suggestive signature. Okay, sorry, I had to pause, um, because, fun fact of the day, Paisley is teething right now, and she laid down to go to bed, and she had been crying before I started recording, but she soothed herself to sleep. She cried for, like, before anyone comes at me, she cried for, like, five seconds, and I was waiting in the hallway to see if she cried any longer, and then she stopped. But now, because she cried that one time, I feel like I'm gonna hear, I hear her crying continuously, because I'm a helicopter parent. So then, um, I just have peeked my head out, because I heard, I thought I heard Bailey get up from his gaming chair, but he wasn't, he was grabbing something from his Xbox controller. So it's fine, she's not crying. Anyway, so it had a ton of misspellings and grammatical errors, and also had a very sexually suggestive signature. And they also, in this letter... They, there were details from the Otero, Otero killings that were just like Otero killings that were not made known to the public. Sorry if I misset that this one time. So all of this stuff that was mixed in was considered the killer's brand. I think now they would call it a profile, but back then it was like a brand. So March 17th, 1977... BTK came up to Shirley Vian and Vian and knocked on the door. Stephen, who was five, her son, opened up the door and BTK asked him if he had any parents home. Stephen told him that he did, but his mom was sick in bed. He had two of his siblings home still and BTK came in and turned off the TV. He pulled the blinds shut, got out his pistol, and then the phone rang. And Stephen asked his mom if he should answer, but BTK said no, even before Shirley could respond. And Shirley said to just listen to him. BTK then had Shirley go grab blankets and toys and to put them in the bathroom. He ended up putting all three kids in the bathroom and tied a rope around one door to the bathroom sink. He then put a bed against the other door so it couldn't be open. But Stephen was able to stand on something and look over the door and he watched his mom get tied up now steven threatened to untie the rope from the sink but btk's response was in quotes you better not i'll blow your fucking head off end quotes steven said that btk was in his home for 40 minutes and then one of his brothers was able to get out through the bathroom window but steven and his other sibling just kind of fit but steven was able to break open the door except at that point Sadly, BTK was gone and Shirley had been killed. So that was in 1977 in March. And we're going to go all the way to December 8th of 1977. So we're meeting Nancy Fox. She was a single girl. She was 25. She was working two jobs. You know, she lived in a duplex. Ah, And sadly, BTK broke into her home. He bound her and strangled her. 
But then he did something that he's never done before, and he called 911 off a payphone that was nearby to let them know what he had done. And in quotes, he said, you will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing, Nancy Fox, end quote. So police had Beverly Fox, which was Nancy Fox's sister, and other victim relatives listen to the 911 call to see if they recognized his voice. And uh, sadly, no one did recognize his voice. And then in January of 1978, like the last day of January, the 31st, a poem that was written on the index card was sent to the Wichita Eagle. And it was titled, Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks, Wilt Thou Be Mine? And originally the mail clerk didn't see it having anything to do with Shirley Vion. And he really, since it was so close to Valentine's Day, just thought it was maybe a Valentine's Day note since it was Wilt Thou Be Mine. So he sent it up to the classified department. Also, just so you guys know, my dog, Ebby, my beagle, is laying on my pillows asleep. And she loves to sleep under the covers. So I pulled my blanket up over her and so she's asleep but if you hear her kind of like whining sometimes if I'm not in bed and she's all the way over there alone it's gonna be really sad but sometimes she has nightmares and so she'll whine in her sleep so if you hear her start to whine it's just because she's very sad that I'm not in bed but she's very comfortable so she doesn't want to come lay under my feet at the desk uh so he sent up to the classified department, and then on February 10th, which happens to be Peabut's B-Day, um, I just dropped my pen, I'm so sorry. He did not receive any media coverage, because again, the mail clerk thought that it was just a Valentine's Day note, so he sent up to the classified department. Since there was no media coverage, BTK reached out again, and he sent to Cake TV how many people do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper or some national attention? So then he included potential names for himself, which was the BTK Strangler, the Wichita Hangman, and the Asphyxiator, which the Asphyxiator, Asphyxiate, did I just stroke out? The Asphyxiator sounds like a bad guy in a freaking Marvel movie. So, the Wichita Police Chief Richard Lamunyan called a news conference to talk about BTK for the first time ever. And he said, in quotes, We have no reason to believe the individual has the capability to kill again. Well, they were wrong. Because on April 28th of 1979, Anna Williams, who was 63 years old, was strangled. BTK stalked her and had been, or she wasn't strangled. That's my bad. That's on me. I read a little bit too far ahead. Anna Williams should have been killed, but was not. So she was 63 years old and BTK stalked her and had been waiting for her to come home. Now he had kind of walked, stalked her for a little bit to get her schedule. But, and while he was waiting inside her home, he stole some things but God was looking out for Anna or some being up there was looking out for her because she was late to coming home. And at that point, he gave up and just left. And it wasn't until mid-June that Anna knew about this. Um, and she only found out because BTK sent her the things he stole. Like, 
sent her back her stuff. And then with a poem that said, oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Weird, weird, right? So August 14th of 1979, at this point, like authorities, they just don't know what to do. So they released the 911 call for Nancy Fox, which led to a shit ton of tips. But none of the tips ended up leading anywhere. So they decided that in 1984, they were going to form the Ghostbusters. Love it. I'm loving this for them. Now, Chief Lamunian created a task force specifically to combat BTK. And it was named after the original Ghostbuster movie. And their goal for the Ghostbusters was basically to find any evidence like fingerprints, DNA, things like that, and preserve it so they could use it in the future. So they were thinking ahead. The Kansas police, I know it took them a little bit to find BTK, but they did not mess around. They were like, in the future, we will have these things to be able to do stuff. Let's, let's get it all together. So then in April of 1985 on the 27th Marine Hedge was taken from her home now early she was only 53 and earlier in the day she was playing bingo with her boyfriend I want to be playing bingo with my boyfriend but he's my husband and he doesn't want to play bingo with me which is rude um and she was found eight days later now it's important to remember Marine Hedge for later. I'm just saying, I mean, it's important to remember all of them, but Marine Hedge has a weird connection to BTK. Um, she was, I guess I can tell you now, she was his neighbor. But we don't find that out until later. Um, Marine Hedge was strangled, but when the police came to investigate, they didn't realize that she was connected to BTK. Now, in one of the resources that I found in the Britannica, it said that BTK brought Marine to um, a church and took pictures of her in bondage. Now we're flash forwarding to September 16th of 1986 when Bill, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, so I'm so sorry, Bill Weggerly came home from lunch. And his wife, Vicky, was nowhere to be seen, but their two-year-old was sitting alone. So, obviously, her husband's going to start looking for her, and he went into the bedroom, and Vicky was dead. But Bill became the number one suspect, because the spouses usually are, you know? That's just how it goes. I took a quick break to get a drink of water, and I forgot how much ice I put in my water. I love my drinks, like, ice cold. Forgot how much I put in there. Oh my gosh, it like cooled my entire throat. That was insane. So now we're flash forwarding all the way to 1991. It's January 19th. And all of a sudden, Dolores, who Davis, who lives at home, had a cinder block thrown, her, thrown through her sliding glass door. That was hard to say. And she went to investigate. She's like, who's throwing stuff in my house and she sees btk standing in her door he came in and he strangled her to death and then dumped her by a bridge now this is where it gets set a kid was out walking his dog 
and he found Dolores' body. And this was the last kill BTK ever did, and then he completely vanished. They did not hear from him. There was not another killing. He just stopped for 30 years. 30 years. It's, it's fucking nutso to me. So now we're in January of 2004, and the Wichita Eagle runs a 30th anniversary article over BTK. They basically just recapped all his victims and everything he did in the 70s through the 80s. And, right, through the 80s? No, through the 90s. Oh my gosh, where am I? And um, then they wrote that they thought that BTK was either dead or in prison because up until this point, like, the FBI Bureau of, I don't say Bureau of Investigations, like, special unit thing, the profilers, they normally say that if it, a killer just doesn't go dormant for 30 years... So there's only like really two options in that case, dead or in prison or in a mental health facility, like things like that. So then fast forward to March 19th of 2004, BTK mails the Wichita Eagle Vicky Wigerly's missing driver's license. And on the envelope that got sent to them was the name Bill Thomas Kilman, BTK. What the heck? So then they, like, he included photos of her body, and it had a very distinctive signature that could only be linked back to BTK. And the message ended up linking the murder, like her murder, which at the time was still unsolved. They had no idea she was even linked to him linked it to him finally, and he says he's back. Okay, May 5th, he ends up mailing Cake TV a fake ID, and then he also adds titles for a biography for himself and a Find the Word, which is a bummer because I love Find the Words, um, which were to spell out clues, and a couple of those were Prowl and Fantasies, and it didn't have the usual BTK signature to it, though. Now we go to the end of the year. It's December 13th, 2004. And a man was walking through the Murdoch Park, which was in Wichita, and he found a garbage bag. And in the garbage bag, it had Nancy Fox's driver's license, a Barbie doll with, like, with a hoodie on, and the hood was over her head, and the Barbie's arms were tied behind her back. And I'm saying her because if it was a Kindle, I would assume the articles, that all the articles I read would have said Kindle, not Barbie doll. So, I'm just going to leave that there. Now, I know I've told you about the victims, and I've told you about BTK and kind of what he's sending, but I have not told you about the detectives yet. So, detectives Dana Gouge and Kelly Otis created a task force. This was in 2004. Now, Dana did work the case in the 70s. Now, Dana and Kelly are both men. All three major detectives that you will find on Catching a Killer on Netflix, all three were males. And then all, I think, at least two out of three had worked on the case as well in the 70s. But don't take my word for it. I know Dana did, for sure. I also watched this about when this comes out, 
it'll be two weeks. I'm recording it six days early. It's Tuesday. Um, and I watched it, I think, either last Monday or the weekend before that. So it's it's been a little bit. So Dana had worked the case in the 70s through the 90s when this all happened. And he was so disturbed by looking at the original crime scene photos from the Ontario murders because he had kids around the same age as Josie and Joey who were 11 and 9. And Kelly said he would come home late and he would drink whiskey and watch mindless TV because he just said sleeping was, he could not sleep for the life of him. And this wasn't, I believe this was in 2004. Um, and he said that he would usually just like lay in bed to, and try to sleep. And then when he couldn't, he would just get up, shower, shave, and he would put on a new suit and he'd go back to work. He'd usually arrive at his office around 4 a.m. He'd get there, lights would be on because the other investigators would already be there. They'd all be sitting around the table talking about different theories uh, because they just, they wanted this thing solved. Now, this man had to be up at like 3 a.m. to shower, shave, and put on a new suit and drive. There's no way. He, this man just never slept. So, the task force was like, let's use the fact that BTK wants attention to our advantage. Because maybe we can get him to slip up. So, in January of 2005, they derive a plan because BTK sent a postcard on the 25th. And he said, here are instructions, and if you follow them, they will lead you to a clue. So they're, they're reading it, and the postcard leads them to a road outside of Wichita where they find a cereal box with a graphic description of the murders of the Ontario family with a doll that had position to, like, look dead and he also asked if his package had been found that he had left at the Home Depot. So investigators automatically go to Home Depot. They're looking around. They don't find anything. So finally, they ask around to employees. And someone was like, oh, hey, one of our employees actually found a cereal box in the bed of his pickup. So, you know, they were, Dana and Kelly were like, okay, let's find him. So they found him. And he was like, I threw it away, but I actually still have the trash that I threw it away in. So they found it and it was a cereal box. I'm pretty sure I just said that. Um, with a message from BTK. And he wanted to know if he could communicate with detectives through a floppy disk because he wanted to make sure it couldn't be traced. And he wanted them to be honest. He said, be honest with me. Can I send you a floppy disk without you tracing it? And Detective Dana or he said if he could, the investigators needed to run an ad in the paper saying, in quotes, Rex, it'll be okay, end quotes. And in the, like, Oxygen article that I had read and the episode I had read on Catching Killers, <laughs> Detective Dana said, in quotes, the decision was made that we weren't going to be honest with him, in quotes. And I love that because there's nothing, there's I'm trying to gather my words. Like, there's no way for him at this point to win. Because if they say no, like, if they say yes, he's going to send them the floppy disk. And even if there's if there's not a way to trace him, then he gets out of it. But if they say yes, they can trace him. It's like, 
are you going to believe them? And that's where his ego gets on the way. I don't know if any of that made sense. But like, just because they tell you that it's okay to send it, you really think it's okay to send it? That, like, okay. So they put an ad in the paper and it read, Rex, it'll be okay. Contact me, PO box, first four ref numbers at 67202. Which means contact me at a PO box, first four reference numbers at 67202. Now, the ads and papers you have to pay like money by the letters so I'm imagining that's why they shortened a lot of it so BTK's dumbass which I'm glad he did and I'm glad he didn't at the same time like I mean I'm very glad he did I shouldn't have said I'm not glad I'm very glad he did it's just the stupidity baffles me like how to not how to get caught 101 BTK right there so he mailed, a, he mailed a floppy disk and a cyber cop named Randy Stone, you know, investigated the floppy disk. He covered it. I really hope I'm talking to people who know what a floppy disk is. Um, in case you don't, I should probably specify so you're not like, Pam, what the heck is that? So a floppy disk was this like square thing. I would say probably the size of a coaster, like a cup coaster, maybe just a little bit like more in length than that um and you would put it into your like computers like hard drive and stuff like that and then it would save stuff like that's how college kids used to save their papers when they were typing it in the library ah so the floppy disk was investigated by randy stone and randy came up to the other investigators and he's like listen there's an encrypted metadata in this And I know I said that with a lot of confidence. I have no idea what an encrypted metadata is. But what I do know is that the metadata had a name on it saying Dennis and that it had been made at the Christ Lutheran Church and the Park City Library. So when they Googled what the Christ Lutheran Church was and the website popped up, so did the president of the church, who was named Dennis Rader. And thanks to the Ghostbusters, you remember them from a little bit earlier, because they had preserved all of that evidence and a ton of DNA, Lieutenant Landwer and his team were able to look into Dennis and found out that his daughter had been in the hospital for a pap smear. And you might be like, Peyton, that your sentence didn't make any sense. You said thanks to the Ghostbusters and them preserving a ton of DNA. And then he went to, you know, Lieutenant finding out that Dennis's daughter had a pap smear. What does that have to do anything? Well... The hospital had her DNA. And the hospital gave her DNA to Lieutenant Landwehr. Landwehr and it was a match to BTK. That's right. It came back to a familiar match to BTK. And that's how they knew that Dennis Rader was BTK. Now you might be like, okay... Who is Dennis Rader? Well, Dennis Rader was born March 9th in 1945, I believe making him a Pisces. He's from Pittsburgh, Kansas, but he was raised in Wichita, Kansas. He had three brothers. He, like in the future, claims he killed animals and that he had violent sexual fantasies. No one can really tell about the violent sexual fantasies, but no one else has been able to corroborate that he killed animals. He said he didn't get much attention from his parents, so he felt alone. In 1966, he joined the U.S. Air Force 
And then in 1970, he returned to Wichita. He got married to Paula Dietz in 1971, and they had two children, Carrie and Brian. Carrie, obviously, is the one with the pap smear. Brian can't get one. Uh, and he ended up starting college at Wichita State. He graduated from there in 1979. He got his degree in... Um, he got a BA in Administration of Justice, which is weird to me. He got a job at the Coleman Company, Inc., where he installed alarm security systems in Wichita. Now, if you remember, I had said that Joseph Oterio, Oterio and um, Miss Catherine Bright both worked at Coleman, meaning they were co-workers of his. And he also killed his neighbor. Love that. Love that. But then he started working for ADT. He was very active in his church. He was a Boy Scout leader. Um, and so police think because he was working full-time, he was leading Boy Scouts, he was president of his church, and he was raising two kids, that that's why he was dormant for 30, well, it was, had been 30 years since his kill, his first kill, but he stopped killing in 1991, and it's 2005, so it's only been nine years at this point that he was, like, dormant, like, fully dormant, but it had been 30 years from his first kill, if that makes any sense. Um, so, he also then admitted that the Wichita Eagles article had gotten him all fired up again, and he was, he was ready to go. So, a little bit about his wife, Paula. She was born May 5th, 1948. So, she's also a Pisces. No, she's not a Pisces. I said March. I think May Pisces. Uh, not a, no. We're coming up on Gemini season. I don't know what May is. Sorry. I don't know what May is. She was from Park City, Kansas. Um, her family was very religious. Her dad was an engineer and her mom was a librarian. She graduated school in 1966, and then she graduated in 1970 with a BA in accounting from the National American University of Wichita. She became a bookkeeper, and she worked as a bookkeeper until she retired. Now, I do want to say, which I may have it in my notes later, I can't remember, but I do want to say that poor Paula and her kids had no idea that Dennis was a killer. Like, Carrie and Brian both have said that their dad was like an amazing dad like the best dad that they could ever have and he showed no signs of ever being a killer or anything like that um but they are all super super disgusted with their dad that Paula I do think I say it later um but I'll just say it now since we're talking about Paula um but I don't know where I put it in later. So we're, oh, here we, I found it. I found it. Um, we're going to, we'll talk about it in a minute, like literally two seconds. So, um, like I said, they did not like him at all because of it. So now his capture happened on February 25th of 2005. He was on his way home from work because he was planning on having lunch with Paula and a line of police cars pulled him over. And they were like, 
he just he cooperated fine except he looked these officers in the face and said in quotes you better tell my wife that i won't be home from lunch in quote he was right outside their house you don't think paula paula saw you so paula since she had no idea he was a killer divorced his ass immediately she filed for emergency divorce and it was approved that day due to circumstances thank you god almighty thank you because that is exactly what you do you don't stand behind your husband if he's a killer Mm-mm. not at all not at all um so in police custody they showed him all of the DNA evidence that they had and how it matched to his daughter, Carrie. And he's thinking that him and the agents are bonding, so he ends up confessing. But he did tell Lieutenant, now he's Lieutenant, because he used to be Chief, now he's Lieutenant, Landwehr, um, that he was upset that he lied to him about not being able to track him with the floppy disk. And his arrest was announced at the Wichita City Hall the following day. There had been an audience of people there when they heard that BTK had been arrested. And they cheered when they said it. Now, I said, I'm not going to say BTK anymore. His name's Dennis. The only reason why I said BTK was because I wanted to, like, keep the suspense up a little bit. Um, From now on, I'm going to just call him Dennis. I'm not going to call him BTK. The only reason why I just now said BTK was because... Uh, they hadn't told them the name. They just said, oh, look, we caught BTK. Now that the public knows in this timeline, I will now call him Dennis, especially because I don't want to call him anymore by the name he wants to be called. It's like he came up with that for himself. So now you're probably wondering, well, is, is Charlie doing okay? So Charlie was landscaping a yard when his sister called, the same sister that had been with him when he found when they found his parents, and she called telling him that Dennis Rader had been arrested for killing their family. Now, everything that I'm about to say is directly from an interview that Charlie has done. And again, I will say where I found everything at the end. Um, and he said, in quotes, she said, they got him. And I said, yeah, right. She goes, no, they really got him. They swear it's him. I said, okay. And I put the phone down. And I remember bushes flying 10 feet high over my head. I was ripping them out of the ground. I had no idea till the next morning when the news blitz came on and the phone started ringing. They showed his picture and I thought, that is the devil ag- devil's agent that killed 10 people? Are you kidding me? In April 19, or on April 19th of 2005, Dennis decides decides to waive his right to a preliminary hearing. Oh my gosh. This means that he understands Kansas has enough evidence to go to trial. Prosecutors, though, wanted to have a preliminary heating, hearing because it would go on for several days because they intended at this point to lay out all the evidence that they had against Dennis. But the court sealed almost every order and motion filed. Two days late, two weeks later, though, um, Dennis remained silent, so Judge Gregory Waller had to enter his non-guilty plea. The prosecution at this point could not seek the death penalty because the crimes were committed before 1994, and in 1994, that is when um, a capital punishment law had been passed, which I do get into in a little bit. So if you're like, what, what the heck does that mean? I do get more into it in like I think five seconds. Um, so the defense lawyer, 
for Dennis was Steve Osborne, and the district attorney was Nola Fultson. Fultson. Sounds British, eh? Steve said, that was terrible. I'm so sorry. Please, if I offended anyone, I'm so, so sorry. So sorry. I've been watching a lot of Harry Potter. Did you know in Harry Potter, that really tall, like, lady in the Goblet of Fire calls Dumbledore Dumbledore? I don't, can't tell you how many times I watched that movie, and that's the first time I caught it. Um, so, Steve Osborne said Dennis wouldn't be pleading innocent by reason of insanity, and they also um, didn't anticipate a plea bargain because I don't know why, and they decided to not change the location of the trial. I think Steve Osborne was like, Dennis, you're screwed. Fuck this. Fuck that. You're going to jail. Um, and so June 27, 2005, a turn of events happened because Dennis pled guilty on all 10 counts of murder. This left the prosecutors stunned um, because he provided in court great detail on how he would select each victim and then he'd stalk them and then kill them. Steve Osborne says that they decided to enter the guilty plea because there was just overwhelming evidence against Dennis. And then he ended up entering an insanity plea due to the fact that they didn't have a legal one-up on the prosecution, is, is what Steve said. He was like, we don't have enough evidence to prove he didn't do it, so we're just going to say he's insane. I bet that's exactly how he said it. So on August 18th, in 2005, the sentencing hearing lasted two days. There were testimonies from the investigators over everything that they saw, um, like the DNA that they found, how they went about tracing it, all that stuff. And then they had described Dennis's sexual fantasies that always involved torture. The victims all were, had impact statements. And just so you guys know, the courtroom was so full of victims' family members that they had to open an overflow room with a TV to accommodate the mass numbers that came in. And then Dennis does something that I want to smack him for. He did apologize to the families, but like, if you didn't mean to do it, you wouldn't have done it, is my my thing. Um, thank you, Ash Kell from Morbid. Um, because I always believe that, but I didn't know how to put it into words. And she did it beautifully. Um, I think her, like, mom told her that. But I don't want to give her mom credit at all. Because if you ever, if you listen to Morbid, her mom sucks. And I feel so bad for her. I know she's, like, a year older than me. But, like, I'll be your mom, Ashkel, if you're listening. Love you, Mucho. I think Ashkel and Elena and I would be all really good friends. That's just my dream in life. Anyway, um, so Dennis apologized, but then he said, I hope the families can forgive me one day. And like, sir, I would not forgive you. I would not. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Um, I, in my notes, I put Roll's eyes. Because, yeah. In 1994, okay, so we're going to get into why they can't go out of the death penalty. And it's because... Before 1994, Kansas didn't have a death penalty anymore. I don't know when it went away, but they 
had dissolved it. Um, so because the crimes happened from 1978, I think I said. Pause. I'm, I'm going to get back to you on that. Okay, 1974. That's my bad. I hate having so many dates in my head because my ADHD has them like scrambled and not in order like a normal person brain. Um, so all of them took place between 1974 and 1991 without a death penalty. In 1994, the death penalty in Kansas was reinstated. But just because he was caught after 1994 doesn't mean he can receive the death penalty since all the murders happen before 1994. Which to me is like, but he didn't get caught till later. Let's burn him at the stake. Um, but the judge did sentence him to 10 consecutive life sentences in prison. For some reason, he's eligible for parole, but he has to spend at least 175 years in jail before he's eligible for parole. In my opinion, I don't know why they just say 10 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Because at this point, like, he was born. I can't even remember when he was born. He was born in 1945, which is two years before my grandpa. And my grandpa right now is 75. So, like, he's 75 right now. There's no way he'd even get parole. Which, I mean, if that's just the judge trying to be like... Oh, hey, by the way, blah, 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 like trying to be a dick, then okay, but just be a dick and say no, no parole. Like, maybe he's trying to be a dick by giving him hope, but there's no way he lives another hundred years. So my, where I got my resources for this was a 2020 extra with the victim's families, ABC's man who met uh, BTK Serial Killer Speaks Out, Catching a Killer, which is Season 1, Episode 1 on Netflix, Yen.com.gh with Paula Dietz, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader's Ex-Wife, Oxygen.com. It was a horrendous, it was horrendous. Netflix is catching killers on how BTK case caught haunted investigators and Biography.com, Dennis Rader, BTK. And that is it for this week, ladies and gentlemen. Um, next week is Kentucky. And then here recently, there's been a couple different cases that I've come across that have really, really interested me. So I think... Like, I leave to go home on the 9th. So I'm thinking the week before July 9th, like the week of July 9th. So between the 3rd and the 9th, I may do a bonus episode on one of the cases that have been really interesting me. Um, it's not one that follows, you know, the most prolific serial killers of each state. It's just one that, that there's a couple. I have like ideas, um, but there's just some that have interested me they're not spooky they're just different like 
mystery cases. Um, so I think I'm going to do that. And yeah, I'm proud of myself for being this ahead because now we're just going to jump right into the research for Kentucky. All right. Well, I love you spooky bitches. Bye.